The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. wonderful to be with you this morning. It's always a joy to gather together and worship our God. We sang a song on Wednesday night that it's not a new one. It's a very old song, actually, and it's, it's one we sing often here. And it got me to thinking about it a little bit. And so the title of our lesson this morning bears the same title, The Way of the Cross Leads Home. We understand that the cross is representative of really the gospel message. The cross of Jesus is the centerpiece on which the rest of the gospel revolves around. It's the sacrifice of cross. It's not talking about the wood, the the figure even, and the symbol even, but it's a it's a representation of the gospel as a whole, all that it entails, and that way of following the gospel leads home. But it's also representative of tribulation and a test and suffering and anguish, and it's really an uncomfortable concept. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's foolishness to the Greek. It was not a thing that people looked on with great value or consideration, but it was one that many just dismissed as foolish. And we need to recognize that while there's great blessings in the gospel, that really it's a way that is difficult. It's a way that is trying. It's a way that is not easy, but it does indeed lead home. So it's of great worth. We want to have the confidence like the Apostle Paul did in 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8 when he said, Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. He had a great confidence that he had done what he needed to do by the requirements of the Lord to achieve that goal of heaven. And that's certainly our goal in this life. We want nothing more than to be able to utter those words in the same measure of confidence as did the Apostle Paul. But I think we're familiar with that text because the Apostle Paul demonstrated in the previous verses why he could say that with confidence. He said in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have kept. Uh, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's when he says, finally, this crown of righteousness is laid up for me. He has confidence in it. But verse 6 indicates that he's nearing the end of his entire life that has been given as a sacrifice. The drink offering was poured out at the end of each sacrifice, denoting the end of that sacrifice that was commanded under the old law. The Apostle Paul demonstrated that he practiced what he preached, as we read in Romans 12 and verses 1 and 2, to present our bodies a living sacrifice. And he was saying that my life is coming to a close and I'm going to pour it out as a sacrifice just like I have been doing all along. Take sacrifice. That's not fun. He talks about how he had fought. That takes effort. It takes opposition to all those things that are themselves opposed to Jesus and opposed to the faith. And he talks about how he finished the race. He endured. He ran hard. He didn't just meander along and take a break, but he continued throughout his life. And he had kept the faith. He guarded it with his life, as was appointed him by Jesus. He sacrificed, fought, and he ran. Those imply effort. And those imply pain and anguish. That's the way of the cross. And that's why Paul had a confidence that he'd be at home with Jesus. It's important to consider the fact that 
the way to heaven is long and it's grueling and it's difficult and that it could rightly be described as the way of the cross, not just simply as we submit to the, the cross of Christ, the message of the cross, but as we, as we endure the suffering and the struggles and the persecutions and the trials that are laden on that path. Because there are times where we want to choose the easy way out. We want to take what we might describe as the path of least resistance. When we come to an obstacle, we come to some resistance. We don't want to to push on and deal with it, but it's always a temptation to just kind of go around it, dismiss it, to take that path that is easier. The path of least resistance is the physical or metaphorical pathway that provides the least resistance to forward motion by a given object or entity among a set of alternative paths. The concept is often used to describe why an object or entity takes a given path. And it's very scientific principle, and it's most often demonstrated by the example of water. And that's why rivers are squiggly and they cut in and out of places because they take the path of least resistance. And it almost seems like a good idea, taking the path of least resistance, but really what that shows is a smallness of character. What we want to do when we come to resistance, we come to friction, opposition, and conflict, is not to be dismissive of it and passive of it and just go around it, but Christ wants us to push through it. There's great resistance on the path to heaven, and we need to take that path or else we won't find ourselves at home. We know this by simple passages such as Matthew 7 and verse 13 and 14 where Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way which leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Most people will take the path of least resistance. When God's word commands us to avoid certain things and to press on in certain things, be diligent in applying the message of the cross. Many look at that and think of it as too difficult, as too hard, as not worth it. And so they take the path of least resistance and they'll find themselves in destruction utterly. And consider in Mark chapter 8 that Jesus mentions the concept of taking up the cross and that that is indeed one of the reasons why that way to heaven is narrow and difficult. He had called the people to himself with his disciples also in Mark 8 and verse 34. And he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The cross, again, is that symbol of a burden, of suffering, of shame, but also of duty. It was Jesus's duty to take up his literal cross and die upon it on Mount Calvary, and it is our duty, and it is a difficult one, a one of suffering and shame, and it is certainly a burden, called a burden by Jesus himself in Matthew 11, but one that is light enough with his power and his aid to bear that we must indeed take up. And it is not the path of least resistance, but we need to make sure we understand that it ends at home in heaven, and that's the only path that ends in that destination. Consider very briefly the opposite way, the path of least resistance, because we need to understand that there's nothing positive about this path because it's going to be a temptation for us to take. 
at various parts of our life, we'll reach many forks in the road where we see a difficult path that is less traveled and an easy path that is worn down by the feet of unfaithful men and women. And we're going to have to make a decision. But what we're given as a gift of from God is, is this seeing the future of where that path leads. We can know its destination and that by Scripture. Consider sometimes when men took the path of least resistance. In Numbers the 13th chapter, we reach the point in Israel's history at its young age when they had escaped the corruption and the opposition and oppression in Egypt by the hand of God. And they reached the wilderness of Paran and Kadesh Barnea is where they sent in the 12 men to spy out the land of promise to see whether it was indeed flowing with milk and honey and, and what kind of people they were going to have to face as they went to conquer that land. I think we remember very familiar and, and, and very intimately in this text that out of the 12 men, 10 of those did not bring back a very positive report. In Numbers 13 and verse 26, they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. And then they continued in verse 31 after Caleb said, Let's go get it. And they said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone as spies in is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There were there we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. I think this passage indicates, among many things, that their expectation of taking the promised land was that it was going to be easy, that God was just going to give it to them and they'd get off scot-free. They wouldn't have to to endure. They wouldn't have to worry about any opposition, that they would just go in there and they would squash those people like a bug. And really, that is true to a certain extent. If God is on their side, they would do the same thing to the Canaanites as they did to the Egyptians, rather, that God did. But... They expected it to be easy. And so when they saw that it wasn't going to just be easy, it wasn't going to be a cakewalk, then in their fright and their cowardice, they shrunk back. And that way to the promised land did not seem like the best way anymore. And their expectations were not according to the previous experiences. It wasn't that Egypt was just the pushover. Egypt was a world-dominant power and empire And there was no way really that the children of Israel could have ever defeated them, but it was because God was with them. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point of the way of the cross. That's the whole point of the difficulty in life as we seek to serve God. It's meant to be difficult. It's designed to be difficult. God allows these difficulties in their various appearances because what he wants us to do is not think, oh, this will be easy. He wants us to think that look at how difficult this is, but I can do it with God on my side. It's a test of faith, and he intended that they would have faith in him to deliver them. 
yet they saw the opposition and shrunk in its sight. And in the 14th chapter, all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron and the whole congregation and said to them, if only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness, why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword that our wives and children should become victims? Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. They said it would be easier to go back. It would be easier to return. Look at all that we're going to have to face. Look at all of the possibilities of loss and of, of pain, of, of tribulation. Let's return. That was the path of least resistance because they had, they had met an impasse and instead of deciding to face it, they decided to turn away from it, avoid it altogether. And the end of that is always, ironically, destruction. The rest of Numbers 14 goes on to discuss how Moses interacted with God again, but that ultimately these people would fall in the wilderness. The Hebrew writer puts it this way, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Hebrews 3.17 Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose corpses fell in the wilderness, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Their unbelief and their disobedience came from them taking the path of least resistance, not facing those in the land. I think we see a New Testament example of this in Matthew 19 with the rich young ruler. We remember he came to Jesus and said, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may, I may have eternal life? So Jesus said, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. So he said, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourselves. Now notice this in verse 20. He said, all these things I have kept from my youth. I think that this indicates to some degree or another that the keeping of the commandments was not that big of a deal to this rich young ruler. In infancy as a Christian, keeping commandments, simple ones like those enumerated by Jesus in verse 19, or simple ones like under this new covenant of attending on the first day of the week, of, of getting a Bible lesson done, of, of studying or of, of just worshiping regularly with the saints. Those, those things can be difficult to, to get out of bad habits and start making that our habits when we first obey the gospel. But when we mature in Christ, those kind of commandments, they seem to be less and less of a bother. They're not that difficult. And it seems to me that when the rich young ruler says, I've been keeping these things since my youth, he's saying that that's not a problem for me. But it's quite obvious by his question, what do I still lack? That he knows he's not there yet. There's still some growth to be had. And we remember what Jesus says in verse 21. If you want to be perfect, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And so at the surface, it seems that he's got everything in place. But Jesus, who knows the hearts, understands that his riches are a struggle for him, whether he knows it or not. That these are showing themselves to be of greater importance than the love for God. And so he brings this devotion to him 
that is greater than he presently has. And he challenges him to, to make his life a little more difficult, but in that, show your devotion to God. Show you love God more than your riches. Now, the path of least resistance is what he took. It would be very difficult to sell all he had and give to the poor. But how much easier would it be for him to just ignore what Jesus said, go on and forget about it, like that man who observes his natural face in the mirror of James 1 and goes a man and immediately forgets the kind of man he was? It'd be easier to just forget about it and go on my life and live as I've been living, but with my riches. He chose the path of least resistance. What was at stake was at that home in heaven. Jesus said to his disciples after the man left in verse 23, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He took the path of least resistance. But Jesus does not say it's impossible. He says with men it's impossible, but with God all things are impossible. And so even with that rich young ruler in Matthew 19, God had the same focus that he had with the Israelites in Numbers 13 and 14. It's not supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be difficult so that you can put all your trust in me. Not taking the path of least resistance because that's what we feel, that's all we can do, but taking the difficult path that is the one laid by our Lord and Savior, the way of the cross, and then by God's help, getting to the promised land. There are so many applications with regard to how we're to avoid the path of least resistance and instead we're to take up our our cross and, and follow Jesus, which requires great resistance of things when we meet great resistance against ourselves. It's inherently not easy, but with God, all things are possible, as we just read in Matthew 19. Consider a very basic one, one we talked about in the Bible class this morning, the need to resist sin. That's part of this way of the cross, taking up our cross and following Christ. Because it, it's resistance that we must enforce in our lives against sin. There's constant temptation. It's common to man, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13. It's a daily matter and it always requires effort. It's not easy. The easier way, the path of least resistance is to let our guard down and just think that it's not that big of a deal. Like the Romans in Romans 6 and verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That's a path of least resistance. Having this false view of God's grace that I can just do what I want and God's grace will cover it no matter what, that's just lazy, really. It's certainly not taking up our cross and following Christ. He was the one who never sinned, but think about how difficult that was. Each and every time a temptation comes along and we manage to bear it, it seems like some things build up and we're bearing it and bearing it and we're bearing it. We're rejecting it. We're rejecting it. We're rejecting it. Jesus went through his entire life with that buildup, never giving in. He never laid back. He never took the path of least resistance. We are to always resist sin, understanding that is a common plight to all men. Consider Romans 8 and verse 3, considering Jesus it said that God sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh. That tells us something, not like what the Calvinists will say, that the flesh is inherently sinful, that we have some kind of sinful nature that the scripture doesn't talk about. That's not what it's saying. He's calling it sinful flesh because of what the flesh, unchecked by the will of God, will lead to. We are naturally 
created with certain passions and desires of the flesh. And those inherently are not wrong. They're not wrong at all. They're wrong when they're exercised, when the pleasure is sought outside of God's sphere of commandments. Jesus entered sinful flesh in the sense of Romans 8 and verse 3. His flesh was not tainted with sin, but it was subject to sin. There's a big difference in saying that the flesh is sinful in and of itself and that the flesh is sinful in the sense of being subject to sin. When those passions arouse us and we have those in our flesh, the difference between them being sinful and them not being sinful is whether they're governed by the will of God. That's what Galatians 5 and verse 16 is talking about. I say then, walk in the Spirit, Paul says, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. He's saying it takes resistance. It takes effort. It takes sobriety and vigilance, like we read in 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 this morning, and we'll look at it in a second. It takes self-control. Those things are sinful if they are fulfilled contrary to the Spirit's direction. And so don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, but walk in the Spirit. Don't take the easy way out, he's saying. It's a tug of war. Don't grow tired by the constant struggle and pull from one side to the other, but always fight each and every day and follow that path of resistance. Take up your cross. In 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 and 9, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. That concept of steadfast in the faith is the same concept of Galatians 5, 16 and 17. Walk in the Spirit. There's the object of faith in the gospel of Christ. You stand steadfast in that. You don't move. You don't let this opposition budge you. And that's not going to just happen. It, it takes effort. It takes attention. It takes sobriety and vigilance. In James 4 and verse 7, another passage we looked at this morning, he says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Resisting is a constant thing. And it does say the devil will flee from you, but he will also return. And that's why constant vigilance and sobriety is necessary so that we can see something we do need to resist. There's a lot of times in this life where we're tempted to just give up, to just do it, thinking things like, well, the grace of God is still available to me, so if I just let my guard down this one time, I'm tired of resisting, I'm going to give in for this one time, forgiveness will still be there for me after. That's not how we grow in the faith. That's not how God intended it. He, he allows these temptations. They're not from him, but he allows them so that as we resist them, as we're constantly bearing our cross and we're following down that path of difficulty, that we're strengthening ourselves in endurance. The path of least resistance leads down to decay. It breaks us down in our inward man. The path of resistance, much like physical resistance and weight training and other physical activities, it builds us up. It makes us stronger. It helps us endure further things. The path of resistance we need to understand in this regard of resisting sin, the path of least resistance, it ends in death. In James 1 and verse 14, he explains that each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when that desire 
has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. That's the path we're headed down if we decide to take the easy way. But the way of the cross, the way of always resisting temptation, not growing tired and therefore giving it up, but always resisting and always understanding that it's important to resist. There's no small sin. There's no downtime for the Christian. That leads home. And not many are willing to follow that path. You know, in addition to that and also related to it is that path of resisting error. In Jude verse 3, Jude says, While I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to condemn earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who return, who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Understand the importance of his command here. He says, I wanted to write about our common salvation. It very may well be that he is doing that very thing. It may well be one view of this is that this concept of writing about our common salvation included contending for the faith, and he's doing the very thing he intended to do in the first place. But it's also possible that he just wanted to talk about the good, the positive, the hope, an encouraging epistle, purely. But he said, wait a second, there is opposition. It would have been easier for me to just write this epistle of love and of hope and of comfort of the salvation. Just talk about our common salvation. Would have been easier. But it is necessary for me to tell you to contend for the faith. Because that salvation, it comes from the grace of God. It comes from the gospel of Christ. And there are men, verse 4, who have crept on in and they're turning that good thing into something that actually promotes lewdness. It's kind of like Romans 6 and verse 1. That's how you turn the grace of God into lewdness. Well, as long as there's grace there, it doesn't matter if we sin. That's turning the grace of God into a license to sin or turning it into lewdness. And so there's always going to be error. There's always going to be sin. There's always going to be that negative side of things. And there are times where we give attention to the hope. Always we give attention to the hope when you think about it. Anytime we have a what we might call a doctrinal sermon or we might have a doctrinal study in Bible class or we're talking about a passage that just seems so negative, really it's a study of our hope and salvation. Because the reason we're studying that is because if we don't, then our salvation and our hope are at jeopardy or in jeopardy. And so he says, contend for it. But some want to take the path of least resistance. Some want to be neutral in the matter. Think that it will just be easier to kind of step back, act like I've never heard this and just not say anything. It'll be easier for me to just let the elders or the preacher or, or those who are stronger in the faith than me, to, to address this error. But if you see the error and you know it's error, and you step back in a position of neutrality, there is actually no true neutrality. Because really what you do is pit yourself against Christ. He says that in Matthew 12 and verse 30, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. That path of least resistance is actually a path which is resisting Jesus himself. And while some want to take that neutral position, some just want to avoid any kind of negativity altogether, which really isn't a neutral position. It's a position which is negating other obvious necessities that the gospel tells us about, like Jude 3, contending for the faith. But this is not any new thing. Consider in Isaiah 30, 
a description of the rebellious people of Israel. He says in verse 8 of Isaiah 30, Now go write it before them on a tablet and note it on a scroll that it may be for a time to come forever and forever that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children who will not hear the law of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits, get out of the way, turn aside from the path, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Those are a people who don't want conflict. Those who are a people who don't want to sit through any kind of teaching that has any kind of negative connotation to it. And those who are people who Isaiah, by inspiration of the Spirit, calls rebellious people. People who are saying, cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. And so if we take that in its implication, it's saying that if we're rejecting any kind of negativity, like dealing with problems and sin and error, then what we're really doing is we're rejecting God. God is not all positive and sunshine and rainbows. God means business. He is light and in Him is no darkness at all. And it is His whole effort in the gospel scheme of redemption to put out that darkness by the light. To face the opposition. To understand that negatives are just a part of life. There were some in the New Testament who had a similar mindset when Paul warns Timothy that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Those are the kind of people that say, I don't want to hear negative things. I don't want to be told about this path that maybe I'm headed down that is actually wrong, that is sinful. I don't want to hear about all of this negativity. Instead, scratch my itch. That's a path of least resistance. Instead, much like Jude 3, Jesus requires us to always stand in opposition to any sin and error. It's going to be constant. In Acts 20 and verse 26 and 27, the Apostle Paul showed that that was his own work when he told the Ephesian elders, he said, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not declared, shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. We might talk about the whole counsel of God as being discussions such as love, joy, and peace, and all of those kinds of things. Those are included in it. But you notice the context is him warning them of false teachers, warning them of error, warning them of sin. He's saying, I'm not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And part of that, really the whole of that, is a constant opposition, a constant resistance against sin and error. When the truth is proclaimed, it's always in this concept of a warfare being waged. And we need to understand it as such. There's no time of peace in the kingdom of our Lord. We aren't afforded any time of peace. That time is given to us when time ceases to exist at the coming of the Lord. And we do have that crown of righteousness that the Apostle Paul looked forward to and we do ourselves. We need to view it as that. The preaching of the gospel is always combative. It doesn't matter what the subject is. If it is indeed the counsel of God, it is intended to destroy the works of the devil. It's always combative. There is no path of least resistance in the gospel scheme because the whole gospel scheme is about the resistance of sin. But that path of least resistance going away from the gospel 
like sin ends in death, there's corruption in not facing error. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 33, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. That in the context of false teachers saying there is no resurrection. You just let them go. Don't address it. That's the path of least resistance. There's corruption. You're no longer going to stand right before God. And you know, these two things, as general as they are, and all the specifics we could talk about, they'll all fall under this other general category of how the world will view us and our relationship to the world because we are facing sin and opposition and error and opposition, because we're trying to walk the narrow path that leads to heaven, the difficult path which leads to heaven. It will also bring out the ridicule of the world. We're going to suffer various things by the hands of the world for it. And in that, there's going to be the temptation to take the path of least resistance to just stop. I'm tired of being pushed around. I'm tired of being talked bad about. I'm tired of of all of this narrative that the Christians are the problems in society, that, that we are the ones who are causing all of the trouble. And, and I'm tired of just going out and living for Jesus and and being made fun of for that, being the, the ridicule of the world. And there's going to be the temptation to say, I'm either going to put my Christianity in my pocket and not show it to others, or I'm just going to stop, period. I'm going to join in with the fun. That's not going to lead to heaven. Consider what we're called to do in Romans 12, chapter in verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, by, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. He tells us what that means. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Being conformed to the world, in Romans 12 and verse 2, is the path of least resistance. The world is a comprehensive term denoting the sinfulness and the people involved in it within the world. And so to join the crowd, if you will, to be a part of the majority instead of the minority is going to be easier, naturally. Instead, he says, take that standard, transform your mind by it, prove that it's good and acceptable, live by that. That's going to separate us. In fact, in John the 17th chapter, Jesus gives similar instructions, well, praise about similar things and his prayer to the Lord concerning his disciples. And he tells us, really what does separate us from the world. He prays to God about his disciples, saying, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. That would be the path of least resistance, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. In other words, as long as we are submitting to the gospel of Christ, the truth will be set apart from the world will be hated by the world, will be seen as someone who is different and separate. And it's going to be difficult, implied in the very words of Christ. I don't want you to take them out of the world. God, I'm not saying that I want you to make it easier for them. I want you to to actually make it easier for them to be further distinguished from the world. Separated further, consecrated more to thee. But we do understand that it will be difficult. In John 15 and verse 18, in the same context of the upper room discourse, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet, because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
And what we do is we take heart knowing that while that is the path of the most resistance, the, the most difficult path we could take, that Jesus took it, he overcame, and he offers that same victory to us. John sixteen thirty three. he said, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. We remember a time when Paul was stoned, for his faith in the preaching of the gospel. And in Acts immediately after the text, considering that he was stoned and left for dead, he went to the disciples, strengthening them and encouraging them with these words. We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of heaven. We must. If you want to get to heaven, it is through a world of hurt. But God has overcome the world. Christ has overcome the world. And we will as well. Understand that when we commit our lives to Christ, we're not deciding to take an easy path, but a very difficult one. Consider the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians 6 and verse 14. He says that God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice here, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He says first that the world has been crucified to me. Firstly, the world is dead to him. It's no longer alive in his members. He's not one who wants to do those things. It's dead to him. Like we might tell an individual, you're dead to me because there's something that that severed the relationship or something that's wrong there. You're dead to me. That's what Paul is saying to the world. You're dead to me. I've crucified you. You're of no significance to me any longer. But not just any death. He says, I crucified it. It's an open shame. So the things of the world, they're not just things that are dead to him, but they have no appeal to him whatsoever. They're shameful. They're disgraceful. They're disgusting to Paul. But that's not without consequence because he doesn't just say by whom the world has been crucified to me. He says, and I to the world. And so if we're going to crucify the world, you better believe they're going to turn around and crucify us. And so where the world means nothing to Paul anymore except for shame and, and disgust, we mean nothing to the world anymore except for shame and disgust. If we're not going to take part with them in those matters, then they're not going to put up with us. They're going to hate us. They're going to ridicule us. And I think we'd like to think that most in the world who may be indifferent on matters of religion, especially in this particular land we live in with the freedom of religion, we were allowed to, by law, at least at this point in time, to, to say what we need to say and want to say and do what we need to say and want to say, and that people are going to just leave us alone. We like to think that that's the reality, but it's not. Even the people that are indifferent about religious matters, they just don't care. God is of no significance to them. Whether he exists or whether he doesn't exist, I don't care, they say. They will still actively pursue our hurt. They'll actively pursue making our lives miserable. The world crucifies us when we crucify the world. Consider the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 4.13. He says, we have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Simple truth is, as Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, will suffer a lot of other things as well. Suffer things that naturally comes with the resistance of sin and error. That's just the way of the cross though. But what we do is we take comfort in this time of hurt, in this time of testing, in this time of tribulation, in this time of negativity, of sorrow, of pain and anguish in the world, of tears, of difficulty, we take heart 
in the truth that the way of the cross, it leads home. There's a place with no suffering, anguish, pain, temptation, negativity, no darkness, but God is there and the way of the cross leads to that place. Not any other way. Back in Mark 8 and verse 34, Jesus said, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is why he says do that. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. In other words, the way of the cross means be willing to make your life on earth miserable so that you'll have an eternity of jubilee in heaven, of rejoicing, of comfort. Again, in Mark 10, in verse 29, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. He's saying, bear the trials, bear up under the weight of the duty of taking up your cross and all the negativity that comes with it because in the end is eternal life. And he's saying no one who does that will be left out. But it means every time we're faced with temptation, we don't give in, we don't grow lazy, but we resist. Every time there's error, we stand up against it. Every time there's a duty called for us to fulfill by Christ, we take up that burden and we do it. Because we know as difficult as it may be, as much time that it may take, that it leads home. There's always going to be those kinds of negativities. The path to heaven is, as Jesus said, narrow and difficult, and it's laced with forks in the road where we've got to decide whether we take that path of the cross or we take the path of least resistance, and that is what will determine where we'll be in the end. Whether we'll be at home, we'll be where everyone else is who has taken the easy path. This morning, we want to offer you the invitation to not take the path of least resistance, but to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It begins at baptism. You've got to be crucified with him, baptized into his death in order to be united together with him in his resurrection to a new spiritual life with him. And that new spiritual life is a difficult one. But with his help, all things are possible in that realm. And it will lead home. If you have obeyed the gospel but you need encouragement, any other kind of spiritual help or aid, that's what the family of God is here for. And God is there for you to forgive you of your sins you've repented of, to help you along that path, to aid you in temptation, whatever it may be. That path is difficult, but it's possible to be taken and be successful in taking it with God. And that's why we also extend invitations for anyone who has any spiritual need. So we do so at this time. Come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.